Welcome to Addiction in Simple Terms. My name is Dr. Julian Keats. I'm a specialist with over 10 years' experience assessing and treating drug and alcohol related problems. And in this podcast, I explain some of the important ideas in addiction to help you make sense of your experiences and hopefully make some changes for the better in your life. This is episode 11. In episodes 1 through 5, I spoke about the development of addiction, dependence, and drug-related problems. In episodes 6 through 9, I spoke about some of the general treatment approaches. And in episode 10, I spoke about stress. In today's episode, I'll be talking about fear, anxiety, and avoidance. Let's make a start. Fear and anxiety are an important part of our threat detection and harm avoidance systems. The terms are often used interchangeably and they share many similar features, but there are some important though subtle differences. Let me lay down a couple of initial definitions. Fear is a strong emotional and physiological response to a definite and present threat that triggers increased threat detection physical arousal, and defensive or avoidance behaviours, the fight, flight, or freeze reaction. Fear is a very basic instinctual response that's present in most animals to some degree. Anxiety is a feeling of unease and apprehension in response to an anticipated future threat, which may be real or perceived. Like fear, anxiety can trigger threat detection and psychological worry, physical arousal, and avoidance behaviours. Anxiety is influenced by culture, experience, personality, beliefs, and cognition. Anxiety tends to involve more thinking than fear does. So fear is the response to a threat that has arrived and is present in the here and now. It's intense, urgent, and plays an important role in keeping us safe and alive. Fear occurs after the threat has arrived. Anxiety, on the other hand, occurs before the threat has arrived, and sometimes anxiety occurs for a threat that never materialises at all. Having a clear understanding of fear, how it works and how it serves its purpose, is essential to really understand anxiety and anxiety disorders. So let's take a look at fear in more depth first. We've all felt fear of some sort or another. You might have been walking in the wilderness and encountered a snake or a bear. You might have been mugged on a dark street. You might have ended up in a heated confrontation or a physical fight, a fisticuffs, maybe in the schoolyard or at a sports game gone wild, maybe at a political demonstration or protest that got out of hand. Or maybe you were caught in a hurricane, wildfire or an electrical storm. Fear is a feeling and a response that we all sort of know from experience. Our definition, remember, is fear is a strong emotional and physical response to a real immediate threat. Typically, the threat is the potential for serious physical injury or death, a survival threat. But what does fear actually do? How does it help when it's functioning as it should in humans? Well, fear grabs hold of your attention and prompts you to act quickly with strong motivation. 
It jumpstarts the body's organ systems so that they're ready for action. It primes the heart, the lungs, the muscles, the nerves and the senses, ready for fight, flight or freezing. Fear causes the brain to favour short-term decision-making and automatic responses to find the quickest solution to a problem rather than wasting valuable time on slower reasoning processes and careful thought. Fear also triggers a state of hypervigilance or increased awareness and sensitivity to other things going on in the immediate environment and a tendency to interpret those cues as signs of possible further threats. And fear promotes learning about the immediate details related to the threat so that they can be quickly recognised and responded to if they're encountered again in the future. The part of the brain where fear seems to be experienced is called the amygdala. The amygdala lights up on a brain scanner when we're presented with pictures of spiders or snakes, the sight of blood or gore, sudden unexpected loud noises that make us jump, or even potentially dangerous situations such as heights. These are instinctual fears that seem to be present in all humans from a very young age and also in many, if not most, other animals. But we can also learn to associate normally harmless cues with a fear response. Think of the foreboding music that plays in a horror movie that makes our heart race even when the killer can't be seen because it signifies that the villain is lurking nearby. Or maybe the smell of hospital-grade antiseptic that you associate with being in the dentist's chair or operating theatre, even though you're only just sitting quietly in a waiting room. If you've ever accompanied someone else to the dentist, you may have experienced fear triggered by that smell, even though it's your friend undergoing the procedure and not you. So the amygdala is where we experience the emotion of fear, but it's not solely responsible for the fear response. The amygdala has many, many connections to other parts of the brain from which it receives information and through which it triggers and controls the diverse responses we see. Many of these connections are two-way connections that both bring messages in and take messages out. And this all occurs below the level of consciousness and without us having to think about it. Information comes in from the senses, as you'd expect, from the eyes and the ears and the other senses. But the amygdala also receives information from the memory parts of the brain that are involved in recognising a threat, the parts of the brain that register touch and pain, and various other parts of the brain where complex processing takes place. Outgoing messages from the amygdala travel to parts of the brain involved in generating movement, both involuntary and voluntary, to the hypothalamus that controls the body's hormone response, and to the memory parts of the brain so we can learn from our experiences. Fear is also associated with activation of another part of the nervous system known as the sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system releases adrenaline during the fear response, and along with glucocorticoid hormone release controlled by the hypothalamus, this is sometimes called the acute stress response. This is what causes the physical arousal that prepares the body for action. The heart races and the blood pressure rises, the breathing rate increases, the muscles tense up and the reflexes sharpen, we start to sweat and perspire, and the blood sugar rises as energy stores are mobilised. At the same time as this physical arousal, the senses are heightened, vision and hearing become very sensitive to detecting threats, and attention is grabbed away from whatever the mind was doing to focus on the threat before us. This all occurs within a few split seconds, and usually occurs before we've even had a chance to process the threat on a conscious level. 
And that speed of response is important because when a real threat presents itself, it's often an emergency that demands immediate action. The delay involved in analysing the situation with our conscious thinking and deciding what to do and then calling into action the rest of the body could waste vital milliseconds that may be the difference between life and death. So that's fear. Now let's take a look at anxiety. Now, anxiety is very similar to fear, though it's not quite as intense and urgent, and it occurs before the threat has arrived. It occurs with the anticipation of threat. But both fear and anxiety affect how we think, feel, and act. So anxiety, like fear, sensitizes our threat detection systems and prompts our mind to start looking for recognizable patterns and quick solutions. Anxiety, like fear, causes physical arousal and anxiety and fear both prompt avoidance behaviours. Though we often think of anxiety as a bad thing and the word has become quite medicalised by its association with anxiety disorders and mental illness, it's important to recognise that actually everyone experiences some anxiety some of the time and that a moderate level of anxiety is useful. Some anxiety is necessary to perform at our best in a number of situations. It's anxiety about sitting exams that prompts us to study in advance. It's anxiety about performing well on stage that makes us rehearse and rehearse. And it's anxiety about competing in top-level sports competitions that drives us to practice throughout the off-season. If we had no anxiety, we'd be so laid back we wouldn't prepare or perform at our best. But at the same time, when anxiety is too much, when anxiety is overwhelming, it can get in the way and stop us from performing at our best. For some people, anxiety can intrude into more parts of their life, be more intense or be more enduring and longer lasting than is useful or helpful when compared to the threat that's triggered it. The special ability that humans have to time travel in their mind, to think about the past, to imagine the future, plays a big role in anxiety. This ability to time travel is helpful in many ways because it allows us to examine past events and to spot patterns, then use these to predict the future, meaning we can learn from our experiences and make plans to adjust our response in future. In short, it helps us to learn and adapt. But when there's a mistaken detection of threat, an excessive or inappropriate degree of arousal, or overzealous avoidance and defensive posturing, so too much fight, flight or freeze, or at least misplaced fight, flight or freeze, then we see anxiety that does more harm than good, leading to irrational fears and anxiety disorders. Let's take a look at the three main ways in which anxiety goes wrong. Anxiety affects how we think, feel and act. These are also the three ways in which anxiety can go wrong. Firstly, let's look at cognitions. This is our thoughts and beliefs, the way in which we think. Our cognitions are influenced by our personality and by our experiences, and they're central in how we assess a situation and interpret it, how we appraise a situation, and whether we classify it as a threat of some sort. Let me first paint an example, and then we'll look at how our thinking can be helpful or unhelpful. I want you to imagine you're walking down one side of a busy street on a sunny day, minding your own business. 
Across the other side of the street, on the other footpath or sidewalk or whatever we want to call it, you see someone you know walking in the other direction. It's a sunny day, they're wearing sunglasses, you're wearing sunglasses too. It's a wide street, maybe there's 15 to 20 metres or 50 to 60 feet between you, with cars rushing in both directions. But you put your arm up and you give them a wave. And they do nothing. They don't wave back, they just keep walking. How do you interpret that? Well, you could interpret it in a number of ways. You might think, that person just completely snubbed me. They ignored me and made me feel small and stupid for waving. Now, if you think that, you're likely to feel hurt or upset and maybe a little angry. You might interpret it as a threat. Not one that's going to kill you in the next 30 seconds, but a kind of social interpersonal threat or insult, nonetheless. If you're a sensitive type of personality, if your past experience is of frequent rejection and humiliation... If you've been brought up to think you're a bad or unlikable person, or that other people are mean-spirited and nasty, or you feel that way because in your own life at the moment you're under a lot of stress or feeling depressed, then there's probably a pretty high likelihood that you'll think you've been snubbed and insulted, and start to respond to the situation like you're under threat. On the other hand, you might think, oh, they didn't see me, and not be upset at all that they didn't wave back. You might think they were probably looking the other way. After all, they had on sunglasses and you can't really be sure they saw you. Or maybe because of the distance they didn't recognise it was you or weren't sure you were actually waving at them. If you're not the sensitive type, if your experience is generally that people are nice and would wave at you if they saw you, then maybe you wouldn't interpret this as a threat at all. So how you appraise the situation How you interpret the situation influences whether the situation is seen as a threat. A mistaken appraisal of the situation, possibly influenced by your own personality, experiences or beliefs, can lead to a mistaken detection of threat. And this is one of the ways that things can go wrong and lead to inappropriate activation of fear-type arousal and avoidance. Sometimes the mistaken thinking is not about the actual threat, but about your ability to cope. Let's use another example, one that will be familiar to most people. Let's imagine you have to get up in front of a group of people in public and give a speech. This is a little bit anxiety-provoking for everyone, isn't it? Everyone feels a little anxious, a little nervous, and a little fearful when they have to give a speech. We know it's not going to kill us, but we are going to be watched and evaluated by people in the audience, and we don't want to make a bad impression or a fool of ourselves. Some people have the general view that they're going to cope. They might give a good speech, they might give a bad speech, they may feel a bit embarrassed, but once the speech is done, it'll be over and they can forget about it. If you're like this, if you think one way or the other, you'll cope, then this helps you to control the anxiety to some degree and get through it. But for some people, their self-appraisal that they won't cope is the very thing that causes the anxiety to get out of control. You might hear them say, I'd die if I had to do that, or everyone is going to think I'm stupid and laugh at me, or I'd never live it down. Now, in reality, none of these are really likely to be true, are they? You're not going to walk up on stage to give your speech and then suddenly drop dead. It's very unlikely that the audience is going to laugh out loud at you and call you stupid. Most people are just too polite to do that, even if the speech is pretty ordinary. 
And if you do give a speech that's not well received, well, it's unlikely that anyone's going to talk about it much more than on the drive home. By next Monday or next month, no one is likely to remember your speech or think much of it, and you will have lived it down. But if your appraisal is that you won't cope, then that can cause your anxiety to get out of control and your sense of threat escalates to outright fear. Once you're at the fear stage, fight, flight and freeze kick in. And none of these are going to help you perform well giving a public speech, are they? There's a couple more thinking patterns that can also contribute to anxiety or to maintaining a state of anxiety. The first is catastrophizing, or seeing the potential for catastrophe in everything. This is the tendency to imagine the worst possible outcome in a situation and overestimate its chances of coming true. In many situations in everyday life, there is some risk of catastrophe happening. Every time you get in a car and drive on the highway, there's a chance of being injured or killed in a horrible car crash, or even just crossing the road. No matter how careful you are, there's always the chance that a speeding, out-of-control driver will come out of nowhere and run you down. But the chance is pretty small, and most of the time, it's the rarity of that chance that helps us to overcome the risks and go about our normal lives. If you start catastrophizing. If you imagine that speeding driver lurking around every corner and overestimate the risk of them running you down, well, you'd end up staying home the whole time and never even be able to go out to the local supermarket to get your shopping done. For some people, the tendency to catastrophize leads to persistent anxiety and paralyzing fear that does severely impact their ability to go about their normal life. And it turns out that when people have strong negative experiences in their past burnt into their memory, when they're depressed or highly stressed, or when there's already a little bit of anxiety and the threat detection parts of our brain are activated, we're more likely to misinterpret things as threatening and more likely to catastrophize. Left unchecked, a tendency to catastrophize leads to more anxiety, and more anxiety leads to a greater tendency to catastrophize. When this happens, once again, we see inappropriate activation of arousal and avoidance behaviours. The second type of thinking pattern I want to mention is rumination. What's rumination? Well, the word comes from what cows do when they eat grass, then later on regurgitate it back up and chew it over again. You've heard of cows chewing on their cud, as it's known? Well, that's ruminating. In psychological terms, ruminating is when you keep bringing back a particular thought to think it over and over again and worry on it repeatedly. Now, sometimes when you think something over again, it helps you to clarify the issue in your head and come up with a useful solution. In fact, it's a useful skill much of the time. Thinking something over, sometimes called mulling it over, at a later time point can give you a chance to think about it with a clearer head or a different perspective. This is what we mean when we say to sleep on a decision or to look at a decision again in the clear light of day. But often, a worrying thought will play over and over in your head and keep coming back without being invited, so that it intrudes on your other activities and keeps you up at night, even though it's getting you nowhere to keep thinking and worrying about it. It becomes an unhelpful thought loop. Even worse than that, if we keep having the same thought and getting nowhere, we start to get pessimistic and criticise ourselves, thinking, I'm never going to be able to solve this problem, or maybe... This is hopeless and I'm a failure. This kind of negative thought loop 
really only serves to preoccupy us and make us feel bad. And yep, you guessed it, it leads to inappropriate activation of arousal and avoidance behaviours. Alright, so we've touched on mistaken identification of threat or our ability to cope. We've talked about catastrophizing, and we've talked about negative thought loops. Let's move on from cognitions and thinking and talk about how we feel and specifically how physical arousal can go wrong when we're struggling with anxiety. When we feel fear or when we're anxious, the brain tells the body to get ready to respond to the threat. I've mentioned earlier adrenaline and the acute stress hormones and how they prepare the body for action. The physical feelings we have when we're fearful or anxious are because of this very process. Remember those things I mentioned that happen when the body gets ready for action? The heart races, the blood pressure rises, we start to hyperventilate, the muscles tense up, we start to sweat, you get tunnel vision. Well, they're the very symptoms that we call the symptoms of anxiety. They're one and the same. But whereas these physical changes are useful if you're about to fight a grizzly bear or run from a lion, they're completely inappropriate and unhelpful when you're lying in bed worrying the night before your end-of-year school exam or waiting to go on stage to deliver a speech. Same goes for meeting new people in a social situation. It's no help for you to be tense and sweaty and hearing your heartbeat thumping in your ears. It's just going to make things harder, in fact. And if this physical arousal reaction is happening many times a day or most of the day or for weeks on end because of psychological worry or anxiety, it's just exhausting. It feels unpleasant and it makes you miserable and it can make you feel like there's something physically wrong. When the episodes of physical arousal are short but very intense, they're known as panic attacks and they can make you call the ambulance or go to the hospital emergency room because it feels like you're having a heart attack. More prolonged arousal can lead to muscle tension, headaches and back pain or a churning gut and it's not uncommon for people to go to their doctor and undergo lots of tests trying to find the cause. And the longer term effects of arousal can actually contribute to ongoing chronic medical problems like high blood pressure and diabetes. Lastly, in our thoughts, feelings and actions model is how fear and anxiety make us act, how they affect our behaviour and what it looks like when that goes wrong. Now, when it's fear, it's easy to understand how the fight, flight or freeze reaction makes sense in the wild. You might have to fight off an attacking grizzly bear. You might have to flee from a lion that's chasing you. Or you may need to freeze and hide from a herd of elephants so they don't stampede and trample you to death. But when your anxiety is about managing your money and finances, or public speaking, or when the threat is getting stuck in a frustrating traffic jam, then these responses aren't so useful. Snarling, roaring, responding with aggression or striking out with your fists, not going to help much with your bank manager. Running as fast as you can in the other direction, not good when you're expected up on stage to give a talk. Bobbing down and hiding behind the steering wheel when you're stuck in a traffic jam, counterproductive. Now those images, as amusing as they may be, are a bit melodramatic and oversimplified. But they make a point about anxiety or misplaced and irrational fear and the role of the fight, flight or freeze reaction. 
Most often, though, what I see when people have serious problems with anxiety going wrong is much sadder. The people I see with serious anxiety problems tend to withdraw from life. They withdraw from social interaction and from normal activities to try and avoid any uncertainty and avoid encountering anything that they associate with their anxiety. Sometimes they also resort to drug and alcohol use, to numb themselves to the thoughts or to blot out the feelings related to anxiety, or they engage in other distracting behaviours aimed at escaping but not addressing the underlying anxiety. This sort of withdrawal and isolation and unhealthy drug and alcohol use restricts a person's ability to engage in life. It robs them of the chance to have new and different experiences, experiences that may actually challenge their misinterpretation of the world and disprove their fears. And it impacts those around someone with bad anxiety, their loved ones who have to accommodate the maladaptive responses, and their children who grow up learning that the world is something dangerous to be feared and avoided. Okay, that's where we're going to stop for this episode. I'm sorry if it's been a bit of a downer. We started with fear, went through anxiety, and ended on sadness. But in the next episode, or probably the next two episodes, we'll try to come back from this dark place by looking specifically at the various types of anxiety disorder and some of the treatment approaches that are available. And there are treatments available, treatments that are effective and can reduce or eliminate crippling fear and anxiety and the negative effects they have on how we think, feel and act. My name is Dr. Julian Keats and this is Addiction in Simple Terms.